Welcome to 21 isn't Vlad. We're glad to have you. It's good to be here. Hi. Hi. Uh, so, um, I mean, many of us uh, know you for a little while, particularly from uh, Bitcoin Takeover podcast that you have been rocking for a bit, uh, for a long bit now, actually. Um, but for those Bitcoiners that are listening to this that don't know you yet, um, give us a little rundown. So I'm a guy who enjoys writing, so that's what I mainly do. And I also started the podcast in January of 2019, so it's not that long ago, but right now I have reached episode number 100, which is unbelievable to me. I still feel like I'm Congrats, just man. starting out, and every new episode feels fresh, and I don't feel like it's still, you know the main gig that I do, even though it pays better than my writing. <laughs> I don't know exactly why, but I very much enjoy what I'm doing. And, you know, it's great to work in the Bitcoin space and get to exchange ideas with people who talk a lot more or cover more topics than what's on the news, because nowadays I'm a bit exhausted about all of this news about the pan pandemic and restrictions and whatever vaccines and it seems like it's the same loop of conversations that never end and we don't reach any kind of conclusive situation. So we end up arguing with ourselves and being angry at the world and wanting the ones who don't think like us to be coerced into acting in a certain way. And to me, you know, it's not very interesting. So the fact that I find my refuge into what's going on in the Bitcoin space, that's more than I could ask for. I was just thinking today that this bull market kind of sucks just because all of us are so <laughs> frustrated and angry at our governments that we can't really enjoy what's going on with the price of Bitcoin. Mm. It's it's true. And, and I was also thinking recently, actually, how much more I enjoyed the bear. Like there was, there was so much happening. It seemed like there was so much. I suppose the group, the community, the, that dreaded word. It was it was smaller. It was tighter. Uh, there was less noise. There seemed to be lots of great banter and and kind of uh, various projects being built. And um, yeah, it does seem like it has been sort of diluted a bit by, as you say, uh, current affairs and uh, sort of bickering and, and various bits of drama. But um, so, so you're saying that you mainly consider yourself a writer. Is, is, yeah, is I also right? did a magazine. So I have it behind me. I'm not sure if it makes any sense to show it because this is not going to be a video interview. <laughs> yeah. But it's called BTCTKBR, which stands for Bitcoin Takeover. 
it's a collection of my best articles from the last so we are in august so the last eight months so the best article that i wrote this year and so far it has received quite a good reception i've sent it to people basically instead of trying to sell it i try to look for sponsors to finance the printing and then i sent it to everyone on twitter who wanted to get one and i numbered them from 1 to 150 because that's the first batch i still have about 30 no 24 i think in my room that i have yet to deliver and i'm going to deliver them this week and i'm really happy like it's incredible to know that people are going to hold on to something that you wrote and they're going to keep it in their collection and it's going to mean something. And I know that you had the same feeling last year with 21ism, the comic book. Mm. Yeah, man. I, 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 and I am aware of your writing. Uh, you're, you're a great writer. Um, but I, for some reason, I wasn't, I, I've always been aware of your podcast first and foremost. And I actually thought that that was your first baby and that you started contributing as a writer afterwards. But perhaps no, I was Maybe with Bitcoin Takeover. Because when I started Bitcoin Takeover, I was the editor-in-chief at Crypto Insider, which is a defunct news outlet. And I started just because I was feeling how the ground was shaking beneath me and I wanted to start something different. And I did not have the resources to start a news website by myself because that's exhausting. But I, I did have some connections, some people with whom I was interacting on a daily basis, and I could get them to do interviews. So I thought, why don't I start a podcast? It should be interesting. I, I wanted at first to call it BIP, just like Bitcoin Improvement Proposal, and it would stand for Bitcoin in Politics. And my background is in political science. That's what I did in university. And if you listen to the first season, it's actually heavily focused on the idea that Bitcoin, even though it doesn't meddle with international politics, it affects it. So it's kind of a reverse effect. And we have to consider what kind of impact is this internet money going to have on the world affairs and how the powers that are in place right now are going to have to deal with this. So that's what I wanted to call it at first. But then there was a guy, Bitcoin Posada, on Twitter. And he told me, you know, why don't you call it Bitcoin Takeover? And I liked it so much. And I said, yeah, that, that, that's actually a great name. I'm going <laughs> to use it. So that's kind of the story of it. And each time I get the chance, I, I thank the guy. Like I write him a message and say, you know, you're the one who gave me this name. So thank you. <laughs> That's great. Uh, in, inspiration comes in many forms and from many places. Um, but yeah, that that's great, man. I've 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 enjoyed listening to your podcast for a long time. But interesting to uh, I yeah, interesting that you have sort of made it the platform to take off with all your other things because um, as well as your writing. You're now also uh, producing a uh, a radio show on uh, on your platform. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about that as well. So my approach to promoting my other works is to actually do other works. So when I wanted to promote my podcast, I started writing more articles to get more clicks on my website so that people who read the articles would also find the podcast. And then I said to myself, 
how do I promote my podcast without paying? Okay, let's start an internet radio on Twitch and YouTube, which airs episodes. And instead of just promoting my own work, I wanted to also get more of the lesser known podcasters that I knew at the time. I can also add your episodes if you want, by the way, and do like a weekly playlist in which I air different episodes which cover topics related to Bitcoin from different angles. And if you listen right now on Twitch or on YouTube to the broadcast, you're going to find out that, for example, there are podcasters who do news and talk about the recent events. There are interviewers. There are people who express opinions. There's Guy Swan who reads from popular articles in the space. And it's very wholesome to look at it like this, to realize that there are so many ways to do a podcast. You think that usually it's just one guy or two guys who talk about stuff. But there are many approaches and you can present it from different angles. And each time I make up the playlist, which usually consists of the most recent episodes, I find myself amazed to realize that you can approach the same topic from so many angles and do it in so many ways and still feel fresh. And even though you knew about the events and it doesn't feel like news to you, there's still something to find out. So that's something which I appreciate about the radio and one of the reasons why I keep it, I keep it on at night when I sleep. <laughs> I feel like I'm learning something mm -hmm. before I fall asleep. And then in the morning, <laughs> I wake up to some random facts. And yeah, also what I like about radio as a concept is that you expose yourself to randomness. And it's the same with television. Because nowadays we have these streaming services like Netflix, like Spotify, and you just go to what you know that you like. But you're less likely to explore something that you may like but you don't know much about it. But when you just switch on a channel, like a television channel or a radio station, you're going to find out something that you like and you wouldn't have given any chances otherwise. So that's the whole dimension of randomness, which helps you discover something that you like. It's just like going outside, you know? You go outside in a public place, you might assume that you know what's going to happen, but you never know who's going to show up there and maybe change the regular situation. It's always unpredictable. And somehow I like this randomness. And to complete my original point about always creating something new to promote my other works, I created the magazine as a medium to encapsulate all of my articles, as well as, you know, put an ad or two about my podcast and my radio so that people who receive that magazine and maybe know nothing about me would also get exposed to these other projects of mine. And I usually regard the magazine, even if it's all original and it's my work. And I think it's pretty good. So to be modest, I actually think it's pretty good and it turned out well. I still promote my other projects and someone who's going to get the magazine. And I gave it away for free so far because I, I had money from the sponsors. I'm not sure about the next batch, but let's see what's going to happen. If I receive donations for the magazine, then I'm going to actually print more and give them away for events because that's also the other point because I went to a conference in Mallorca in Spain this month 
and I gave away about 55 magazines of the first batch. And I gave one to Peter Todd. I gave one to Amir Taki, who is the creator of LibBitcoin, an early implementation of the Bitcoin client. I gave one to Thomas Vogtlin from Electrum. So I have all of these OGs who actually own a copy and it's numbered. And I hope that they're going to hold on to it and it's going to be valuable in time. But it feels great to be able to share this with people and give them something physical. And my concept for this magazine is that I want to create something that you can give to someone who doesn't know anything about Bitcoin. And instead of telling them, you know, you should go to that page, which has this article, and you're going to read that and you're going to figure it out by yourself. You give them something that they can hold in their hands and that they can take home, browse when they take their coffee in the morning, find out something new, and basically learn by possessing that physical object. And when they're done with it, they can pass it along to someone new. But, you know, I like this idea of a free magazine, and it's also the reason why it's open source. So if you want to print your own copies and you want to distribute them to conferences or meetups or whatever, you can find the free magazine on bitcoin-takeover.com. It's on the top menu. You just click there and you can download the PDF. And from there on, you can do whatever you want with it. I just care about the information. That's great. We, we, we did the same thing with uh, with uh, Twenty One Is a graphic novel, and but what a what a lovely thing it is. Uh, you know, we talk so much about scarcity. Uh, to give a gift of scarcity, you know, as in the 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 time that you have lovingly lovingly spent. Uh, writing, creating, and, and, and sort of curating um, uh, this physical object that you are then giving out and sharing. It's um, its a great thing to do. But um, so it would have been more obvious to feature you in our word category um, or perhaps uh, one or two other places, but we chose to feature you in music because it's a part of you that obviously means a lot to you, but that pe- I think a lot of people wouldn't know about. So it's it's, it's something uh, that we were all quite cu- curious to find out more about. So I was uh, heavily involved with the voice um, the voice paper project uh, together with Dim and um, Soul Explorer, MTC, and uh, Printier and, and, and a few others. And uh, and of course, for your your bit, you uh, got the guitar out in your pedals and um, and did something cool and engaging. So, um, tell us a little bit about how music uh, is part of your life. So, I'm actually classically trained. When I was a child, my parents took me to music. It was like a specific class where I would take three hours a week. I would take classes three hours a week of piano and musical theory, as well as choir. I used to sing in the choir as a baritone. And I gave up when I was about 12 because I felt like I could not keep up with my other classmates. I was very competitive at the time and I wanted to be the best at everything. And the fact that somebody else was better than me at piano and I never got to play on stage 
just made me feel like I was in the wrong place, trying to compete with the wrong guy. So I gave up on music. So you never got to play on stage? What What do you mean? Were, were there only like a few select people that got to perform? Instrumentally, you... yes. Like if you wanted to play piano on stage in front of an audience, you had to be very good. And that was a bit sloppy. Like I would learn how to play, for example, Bach's Menuet. And I knew how to play it, but I was I was getting nervous. And I, I would, you know, change the rhythm sometimes, mess up some parts or press some keys on the piano too hard or too softly and that would mess up the performance and i would i I was classmates with a guy who was so brilliant that he was winning medals at national contests and i I was so pissed off because i was practicing and i was really trying yet i could never be as good as he was he was a natural at it and his parents were, were also musicians so i think that also helped And I gave up on music for a few years, but when I became a teenager and I got into rock music, I wanted to also play guitar. So I convinced my parents to buy me an electric guitar. They did get me one for Christmas when I was 17. And it was like a learning process, but I've learned guitar like it was piano. Basically, the frets were just like piano keys that I was using to try to produce sounds. So at first I was playing it more like, you know, with solos. That's the first part, which I learned. I was not very interested in chords, but with guitar, it's also very interesting with chords because with different tunings, you can make different sounds and make all sorts of weird chords, which you discover later. But, you know, right now when I play guitar, I usually try to unlearn everything that I have stuck in my brain, all the patterns and all of, you know, the one, four, five chord progressions and whatever. I try to not practice. So I grab my guitar like once a week when I feel tired or bored. And I try to just make sounds with it, but in a way that actually produces something original. And that's how I write songs. I don't practice. I don't think too much about it. I don't have a plan. I just try to make something on the spot just to get something out of myself. And I usually end up writing songs like this. I have like hundreds of demos on my phone that I never had the time to actually record professionally. But last year when I found myself during the lockdown, I actually sat down and recorded about 10 of them. They're called Bitcoin Music right now. And you can find them on, what's it called? SoundCloud. And they are mostly instrumental pieces that I wrote. And they're they're kind of on the ambient side of the debate. I actually have right now on the floor, you cannot see it, but I have my guitar pedals. And last night, I had this crazy idea that I should stack together all of my modulation pedals and see what happens. And... I actually have a flanger, a pitch shifter, a mod reverb, a delay with modulation, and also a vibrato. And I just chain them together to just switch knobs and turn them and see what I can get. And at some point, I I got this wobbly, but at the same time, delay-ish sound, which I liked. And I tried to do something with it and create a chord progression that 
takes advantage of that. And I actually shot a demo last night, but I did not have time to finish it. I guess I will get to it. And just to pressure myself to continue work, I leave them on the floor and see them every day until I finally get to the job. Until they guilt trip you into doing something. About exactly. It. That's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's, it's um, a couple of things. I, I, had, a, I had a similar background. I, I, I played uh, classical violin from when I was four. Uh, but I played by the Suzuki method, which was entirely by ear, and that's how you learned. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so not, none of the theory. And and then when I became a teenager, I also started playing guitar. But yeah, I, I hear you about trying to unlearn, right? And I think it was Picasso that said it took me a lifetime to learn to paint like a child. You know, you 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 build up all this technical knowledge, uh, whatever the subject is. But I think it, it particularly. Uh, applies to to creative fields uh, you know you build up all this technique and whatever else and sometimes you end up focusing on on the technicals or on the uh, on the skill of something uh, or even creating for your peers you know to impress them or to uh, to do something uh, that isn't that isn't uh, internal in origin. It's kind of external, and um, yeah. So, so I, I hear that, and I, I, that's interesting because I think uh, shedding um, shedding sort of uh, filters, trying to uh, keep the conscious mind at bay when you're creating, is quite helpful also also for writing um you, you know articles or prose or, or or whatever else um but going back a, a couple of steps what uh, you, you you're talking there about um how your parents sent you to school or send you to music school um what was what was your life like growing up like what was the environment and what sort of predisposed you to being an independent thinker and discover what primed you to discover Bitcoin and these sort of uh, things later on? Well, so if the question is about becoming an independent thinker, I was always the strange child who was sitting in the corner, not playing with the rest of the kids. I, I was never really cool. I, I found more interesting the stuff that the adults were doing. So when I was at birthday parties with other kids, I wouldn't spend much time playing with them. I would just try to sneak and see what the adults are doing, what the grown-ups are playing. And they would play card games and they would play all sorts of board games. And I found that more interesting than playing with toys for whatever reason. And I always found it strange to relate with people my age. I always felt older when I was growing up. Now I'm kind of the opposite. I'm going to turn 30 in six months. And I feel like I'm 25 and I'm trying to act like I'm 25. So it's kind of a reversed process. But uh, I, I don't think I was really an independent thinker. Like I've always had questions and doubts and stuff like that. But the first moment when I felt like I can see something that the other ones don't, 
was after I read Plato's Republic after my first year of university, because I did study part of it in university in the first year and I liked it, but it just, it was just one chapter. And I felt like, you know, I should read this whole book and see what's inside it. And what Plato is the Republic does is present a conversation with people who try to build the perfect society. And they ask each other, how are we going to do it? How are we going to distribute all the roles? How are we, are we going to go to war to conquer other territories, to expand? How are we going to preserve prosperity? How are we going to create for example, reasons for the army to keep on fighting so that they don't feel demoralized. And all of these ideas are presented in ways that also highlight some counter-arguments. So it's not necessarily a guidebook. Even though Plato, through his conversation, is trying to impose onto you some ideas, it's not very obvious. And you can always try to side with other participants in the debate and try to see what's going on and how you do it differently. And when I realized that that book basically describes every human society in existence and that it all starts from these first principles and then you scale from there, I just started asking myself questions about how governments and organizations get established and what their purpose actually is and how they actually preserve their existence, because I suppose that's the tricky part, maintaining legitimacy across decades or centuries, like in the case of nation states. And I think that was the first moment when I started asking questions. I did discover Bitcoin, I think, like a year later after I read The Republic, but it did not make any sense to me. I looked at it and I didn't see anything special. I just thought, why does this make sense? Why do you need a currency of the internet. I can make internet payments with my credit card. So why should I use this? So I didn't get into Bitcoin at the time, but it actually took me, how long was it? I think four years. And along the way, I was actually assigned a task to do a presentation when I was doing my master in Paris to do a presentation about Bitcoin and blockchain. That's the title of it. And I think a couple of months ago, I looked it up to see if I still have it. And I found some bits of it on an old external drive. And I did make a presentation in front of the class about Bitcoin, but I treated that just like a homework. And I looked at the price and I was just a student trying to pay my rent and eat every day and didn't really understand why I should buy a Bitcoin. I didn't know I could buy a fraction of a Bitcoin, and that's a whole different debate. It was around $300, I think, at the time. And I said, eh, it's not for me. Why should I bother? But the moment when I bought Bitcoin for the first time when well, coincided with the moment when I started making money of my own. And I think with the first few salaries, I just spent them on stuff that my parents never wanted to buy me. So I, I just bought shit that made me feel nostalgic or made me feel like I could have never asked my parents to buy me that. But after this, Dude, I, that's, that's a rite of passage when you're mid twenties. I mean, you're, or, or whatever, early twenties, you have to buy, you have to buy some shit. 
Yeah, that, that's what makes you feel like you're independent. It gives you that sense that you no longer need anyone's permission to purchase something. So you're going to do it. But after that, I felt, you know, desolated. I think that's the right word. Like you can accumulate a lot of possessions, but they make no real sense. And they only make you happy when you buy them, but then they're going to end up sitting on some shelf because you either don't have time to use them or you didn't really know why you bought them. You just bought them for the sake of it because you needed that dopamine pump or whatever. Or you just needed to show off to somebody. And that's kind of meaningless. It doesn't mean that you need that good. And I started I started looking into ways to do something else with my money, potentially invest. And I looked at stocks. I didn't, you know, they made no sense to me. Like, if you don't know much about the company and what it does, and you're just like a small fish in a pond of whales, it doesn't make much sense. But but Bitcoin, for whatever reason, it felt more, I don't know, engaging, inviting. It felt more exciting. It was something that I wanted to own. It was something on which I was willing to risk. So I, I just started buying Bitcoin. And after I bought Bitcoin for a year or two, I decided that I... I've spent so much time reading about it that I also want to write about Bitcoin. So that that's how I, I started looking for jobs to write about Bitcoin. And what I like the most about doing this is that nobody ever asked me for a university degree or for anything for that matter. They were just like, okay, so you can write, right? So why don't you give me a, a thousand words on this topic? You have two days to finish it. That was it. Nobody ever asked me for a college degree. Nobody ever cared where I went to college. And I'm not going to say that I did not go to college and I'm some sort of high school dropout or something. Because I did and I do have some studies. But nobody cares. And that's something which at first I found intriguing because I, I, I was feeling like I can do so much better just because I have these degrees. But afterwards, I realized that that's kind of the whole point of a free market to be able to compete and not have all of these barriers that were created by the state to differentiate between people. And usually the degree only means that your parents could afford to keep you in school for longer. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're more or less of a critical thinker or more or less competent just because you have an extra piece of paper. So that that was also useful for me to learn at that early stage right now, I don't care much about degrees or anything. No, I, it, it feels to me like accreditations, they belong to the old world in, in many ways. I, I have a three-year-old son. I'm not, I'm not at all convinced that accreditations are going to mean anything by the time he get, he's old enough to uh, sort of start conventional studies. Um, I think it would look very different. But you're talking about uh, sort of learning about the uh, play, you know, first principles through Plato. Um, you, you talk about um, sort of your 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 political studies and and all of these sort of things, making investments. But how did 
your place of birth and the recent history there inform you that you're probably too young to have experienced ever living under Ceausescu's rule, right? That he would have been, he would have been gone before you were born, I imagine, or around the same time. But is there some sort of cultural history there as well where you might have been uh, more pro pro free market or uh, more uh, hesitant of sort of collectivist thinking or uh, do you know what I mean? There, there must be some dormant kind of uh, traits maybe there culturally. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I feel like you've asked the right questions. Like you hit the bullseye with this one. Because my family actually has an interesting history that if there was no communism, I would have inherited some small businesses which potentially could have grown bigger. My grand-grandparents were small business owners. And you should not think that they were doing anything interesting or special. They were replacing glass windows and the other one was a butcher. But they they still had some employees. And when the communists came and took over, they became enemy of, enemies of the state just because they had employees. And they were basically, you know, the pigs the enemies of the working class trying to exploit the workers by making them become employees. And that was so anti... I I think they were calling it Construcția Socialista, which means socialist construction. So they actually suffered under the communist regime. And my parents grew under this regime until... I think until the age of 25, 26, they were under this regime, which means that all of their years of education were under it. They had this collectivist type of thinking. It doesn't necessarily mean that they believed in it and their parents told them that it used to be different. But at the same time, there is this very perplexing dimension of authoritarian regimes that they try to erase history and not make you think about what it was like before. And they try to invent some sort of story about how the state was invented and why it's important to preserve it in this state that it finds itself in. So I grew up learning from my grandmother and she, she was the daughter of the butcher in a nutshell. And she has seen how her family has lost everything. But I don't think she told me about this stuff until I grew up and I was a bit older. But I I have still learned about the importance of private property from them. So they, they used to be very firm and very specific about something which belongs to you. And they used to explain to me that it's fine to share with your family members, but if it's with a stranger who comes from a different family, I'm supposed to ask either for payment or try to get a hold of what is mine and protect it. They were trying to teach me that it's important to protect private property. And I think this is very common in Romania because until 1989, nobody really had any private property. It was all owned by the state. 
and after the revolution, everyone tried to claim what they were using from the state as their private property. And some even abused it by claiming lands and buildings that did not belong to them, but nobody else claimed them. So they just happened to have the right political connections to get them. So I suppose that in the 90s, there was a lot of opportunity to get stuff that today costs you about 20 years of working and paying some sort of, what's it called? I'm tired. You pay, you make payments to the bank for 20 years to cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, loan repayments. Yeah, exactly. But something else which has happened in the 90s in Romania was a huge inflation. And my parents used to get their salaries at the beginning at the beginning of the month and in the middle of the month because the currency was devaluing so fast that it would have a different purchasing power within 14 days. So they had to adapt to this. And I think for the first six years of the democratic experience in Romania, it it was pretty brutal. But if you knew how to exploit the system, you would just take loans. And while the currency was getting inflated, you had to pay a smaller amount. So basically, if you were valuing your work in time that you spent working instead of the national currency, for example, you could take a loan to buy a house and it was for 10 years, but due to the inflation, you'd pay it off in one year. And if you understood that it was like that, you could basically expand and make a lot of money, not necessarily fiat money from the state, but accumulate a lot of, a lot of property. So it, it you could game it if you had sort of like fixed assets or, or you know, commodities or you know if you were sat on gold i imagine you, you know you could uh, you could gain the system yeah well. I, I think it was the us dollars that helped some people gain the system of course because they are the world reserve currency even if they have inflation they are a lot more stable than the shit coins of nation states from the second and third world so that's how it works and actually the workers from the secret police who knew that the revolution was coming exchanged all of their money into US dollars and just sat on them until, you know, everything got devalued. And by the time, you know, it was just like buying Bitcoin at the time. It was, you know, the US dollar was their Bitcoin. And I should also mention that my parents had their wedding before the revolution, I think in November. And usually weddings are fundraisers. And Relatives and friends give you money to start a new life and buy a house or whatever, but they wanted to buy a new car. But back in communism, if you wanted to buy a new car, you had to deposit 90% of the amount in the state's account and wait for six months until it, it gets delivered to you and then pay the rest of 10%. So that was the system. You you could not get the car on the spot. You had to wait for it. It, it was like waiting list. But one month after their wedding, the system collapsed. So they never got their car. But two years later, they got their money back. But by the time they got their money back, it was so inflated that the same kind of money that used to buy them a car only helped them buy a couch. And they bought a couch for the living room. 
the same money. So I'm giggling, it but it's is, tragic. But it's not even the only example. Like I'm pretty sure that other families had a more tragic kind of situation. I think my parents were luckier because they had also relatives in the countryside. And in the countryside, they tend to grow their own vegetables and they have chickens and they have pigs and whatever. And they are able to live a more sustainable kind of lifestyle, which does not depend on the national economy or something. They just have something which helps them eat every day of the week without any kind of problems. And here in Romania, if you have relatives who live in the countryside, you tend to get sometimes gifts from them or they tend to support you in some way. They supported, for example, me and my brother with milk when we were still very young. We would get very natural and raw milk from them, which my parents would boil in bowels and feed us. And it was a lot better than the stuff you'd get from the supermarket. So something that I appreciate about this country is that we still have this kind of, I don't know how I should call it. Some of us, you know, people living in cities like to turn their heads and say, you know, these people are backwards peasants or something but they are able to actually live a sustainable life they can actually feed themselves regardless of what's going on with the government and whatever so they are kind of the only sovereign individuals around and they're also able to support the ones around them and tend to be a lot nicer than people living in cities and spending half of their income to pay their rent or something so, yeah, I come from kind of a mixed and brutal environment financially. And I think that the sum of these experiences taught me that I should be careful about private property and the fact that our generation has Bitcoin and we are able to own the kind of asset that cannot be inflated, confiscated or censored by your government or some other entity that's very, very valuable. And it's not something that we should take lightly or we should take for granted. I feel like we should also give back to the Bitcoin network by helping it become more resilient. And right now I'm having this existential problem with trying to mine from home because I live in an apartment in a block. So I have neighbors that can hear for example, I'm pretty sure that they hear that I'm talking right now. So if I bought one of these ASICs, they would be way too noisy. And if I ran it day and night, I I can't find any practical solution. I can try to isolate acoustically the entire room, but that's not very practical. And I'm not sure if I if I were able to have good internet signal in one of these attics or whatever where I can keep an ASIC. So I'm looking into ways to mine from home and I'm looking at devices that are not noisy and don't take up too much energy. I actually found one, but it's almost never in stock. So I cannot recommend it until I actually try it. I might have an update on that one in I a few saw, months. Um, I saw, I just came past something. I've, I've been a bit uh, distracted due to my family situation recently, but I just came past um a, a new product by Steve Barber the other day, um, which was 
basically super densely insulated um, for noise uh, Bitcoin miner in a in basically what looked like a one cube one meter cube uh, case or enclosure. Um, I don't know any more about it than that, but I thought, oh, that'd be good for the, for, for limited spaces. I'm sure he's he's, he's doing it for his uh, oil fields, perhaps, or maybe they're expanding. I don't know, but maybe worth uh, checking his Twitter. But there are two there there are two things that that stood out a little bit for me there in uh, in that sort of fascinating uh, kind of description of you and your families life and upbringing one was how did you not see it when you were in studying in paris and you were you know like with all of that sort of like trauma imprinted on on you um it it's 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 fascinating and it's not the first time because i, I remember like when i was speaking to bitcoin katya growing up in the ukraine and experiencing currency devaluations and resets and stuff like that and it also took her a while to you know the, the three touches to kind of get there so i'm um uh, obviously it's it said with, with with no judgment at all just amazement uh, and the other thing that that really stood out to me is that you must spend a lot of time in your work now thinking back well a appreciating your privilege now of, of having bitcoin you know it given the macro surroundings but also thinking a lot about your ancestors who didn't have that yeah i'm pretty sure that if my grandparents could have bitcoin and use it to preserve their wealth they would have stacked the hell out of it but they did not they were bound to the rules that the government was making and they lost everything so it kind of sucks but at the same time it teaches you a lesson that you should learn and it kind of sucks that i don't see more of this in my generation and when i speak to guys my age most of them are just living wage to wage but not necessarily because they don't make enough money, but because they create this type of lifestyle where they spend everything that they make. So if they get a raise or something, they're going to find something to upgrade in their house or to become more premium. Like they get a nicer kind of soap or shower gel or whatever. They, they basically account for the raise in the product products that they're buying and i suppose that there's something more premium all the time to be found like organic shampoo or whatever if you want to spend a lot of money on something you can actually find places that sell you premium stuff and i find myself talking to these people who have no plan and the only way in which they can actually buy real estate their own house and i think that's the biggest problem with my generation right now it's very hard to get to the point where you can buy your own house or your own apartment. If they ever want to do that, they can only do it by taking a loan from a bank. And if they take a loan from a bank, it means that they have to work for 25 to 30 years to pay it back. And to me, that feels a bit like slavery now that I think about it. It's pretty hard to be able to 
pay that back and remain committed. But at the same time, it's also the way in which the system preserves itself. If you take a loan, it means that you're going to be committed to finding jobs and doing stuff for the rest of your active life until you retire. So you're not going to think about much in these years other than paying back what you have borrowed. So it's a good way for the system to not get revolutionized in any way. It's going to be static and it's going to preserve the current elites. It's going to keep them in their place. I think that's how it works and it's pretty convenient. I mean, I'm I'm 10 years older than you, um, but it's the same story for, for, for a lot of my friends, you know, you know, a lot of my contemporaries. Um, most of them have only been, the ones that have been able to afford to buy a house is, uh, very few of them is because they have earned and saved up the money themselves. The vast majority is uh, people that have, that are from privileged enough backgrounds that their family parents mainly can afford to help them with their deposit and i always thought that it makes sense that if you don't have this future to build you know a financial future to build that it, it creates nihilism you know i mean why why work for tomorrow then you know that then you just live for today then you start living like there is no tomorrow then you start focusing as you say on premium products or uh, purely lifestyle choices in, in, instead of actually focusing on your entire life. Um, how do your friends that aren't in the same place as you, how do they react to you, a uh, sort of ranting on about this perhaps, or trying to orange peel them. Oh, I'm the crazy one. So You find a lot of resistance. I don't think I find resistance. I find ignorance. They don't really care much. They don't want to hear about it because they are so, you know, there's always this peer pressure and this psychological effect that you find when you find so much like-mindedness that you think that you're right. And sometimes I feel the same when I talk to people on Twitter about Bitcoin. I feel like too many of them have some of the same convictions about what Bitcoin is and how it works. And to some extent, it's useful, but it can be detrimental if they don't see the bigger picture. But, you know, I'm not judging them. Like, they're trying to play by the rules of the system and they're doing their best to live decent lives. And I think in the last couple of years, the price of real estate spiked by 40% around here. So even if I did have savings and I did try to save money, it's still pretty difficult to keep up with, on one hand, the inflation, and on the other hand, the increase in pricing for houses. And I don't know if, or I don't know for how long the prices are going to go up. Part of me wishes that there's going to be some sort of other crash so that they become more affordable for the average person. I still haven't figured out maybe that it makes sense to actually take a loan because the fiat currency is going to get inflated to the point that you can pay it back in a few years. 
But at the same time, I'm philosophically against the idea of being in debt because it makes me feel like I'm not a free person and I'm bound to that debt until I pay it. So I, I still need to balance this and figure out exactly what I want. And I think the bigger problem with me is that I don't have like a partner. So if if I had a wife or something, it would be easier for me to settle and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy a house here and let's start a life together. But when you have nobody to plan with, you can be anywhere, right? You have no idea where you're going to meet your future misses. So you just keep on searching. Yeah, and you've been you've been uh, tweeting about that a little bit. I mean, that must be difficult as well when you are as uh, sort of heterodox in your thinking as you as as we are. When you uh, have the conviction and you harbour the uh, the ideas and worldviews that, that that a lot of us hold, it must be pretty complicated trying to uh, have a casual date with somebody who doesn't hold those views. Well, what is your, what's your experience been? So let me tell you that the opinions that we hold about money and about debt and about inflation are not unpopular among, for example, our parents' generation or our grandparents. If I talk to older people, I will discover that they agree with me on lots of topics. Even if they don't know anything about Bitcoin, they understand, for example, Gresham's law. And they will know that if they have, for example, Romanian lei and euro, they're going to spend the Romanian lei first because the euro might actually go up in price. So th they understand some basic and very essential concepts about economics. But if you talk to my generation, it feels like we have been brainwashed into being, this is the term that Chris DeRose used, so I, I don't want to appropriate it, but he was using the term demoralized. And I would say that we also became, I'm, I'm trying to look for a synonym that's nicer than cucked, because we are too dominated. We have been learned from, we have been taught from an early age that we should submit to some sort of authority and that there is some greater principle to which we must abide and never question it. Like in the name of something which sounds very good, like global justice or income inequality or global warming, whatever, they can make us do all sorts of atrocious, atrocious things and they can coerce us into living the kind of lives that are basically slavery i think it's kind of like the modern slavery where for example you cannot have children because you are coerced by your workplace which usually is a corporation if there is any coercion that if you take any time off from what you're currently doing you're not going to make it you're never going to get promoted you're never going to achieve your goals within that company if you take a year off to have a baby and I feel like if you don't control your own body and you have no control over your own work, then you're basically a slave. Somebody else controls you. There are all sorts of levers and all sorts of 
I don't know how I should put it, like switches that people can turn to make you change your mind about stuff and act just the way that they want you to. And I'm not saying that it wasn't the case with our parents and they did not have some of the same problems, but it felt like they were a lot more free and they were taught that they should be pro-choice. It was not as unpopular at the time to talk about principles like my body, my choice, or I get to do whatever I want because it's my life. I, I feel like these ideas of classical liberalism are getting eroded in the name of whatever they're trying to present as global justice or environmentalism. And they're trying to destroy your individuality and make you a part of something which is self-defeating. Like they clip your wings before you ever get to fly. And if you try to rise above and be something greater than what you're, what they destined you to be, you're going to hit against lots of walls. And I think the biggest walls are your peers and the people around you who buy into this propaganda and they become tame. They become unquestioning when it comes to being presented all of these big ideas that they don't really understand. They never really question, but they take for granted. And they think that if somebody tells them you should not own anything ever and you should spend all of your money because this is how you're going to help prevent the spread of income inequality around the world. This is one example. Then they're going to buy into it and do as they have been taught. And they find all of these silly mechanisms to make you think about stuff and make you more obedient. Like, for example, the plastic straws. I think that the masks that we have been wearing for the past year and a half are going to kill a lot more whales and, you know, fish in the ocean than actual plastic straws. But they only used something small and common just to implant this idea in your mind and try to do it with other stuff in the future. And they're going to keep on banning and I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, but it's a, a way to control you and limit the ways in which you can act as an individual. And by doing this, they also take away some of your courage and individuality. And it took me years to figure this out because I went to a university which taught me all of these ideas about social justice and whatever. And there were topics in later years that we were not allowed to discuss or debate because they were offensive, so whatever. But to get to a point where everything can be debated and everything is interesting once again, and there are no absolutes, and that, that's something which I discovered in the Bitcoin space, even though you, you find some orthodox people who tend to tell you that you should never spend your Bitcoin and you should use it in this specific way and they know better. And if you disagree with them, then you're stupid. Keynesian or whatever, it doesn't mean that the rest of the community is like this. And it's interesting because you have the kind of money which gives you purchasing power and the ability to resist coercion from your government. And there are so many ways in which you can use it. You can either 
take advantage of the fiat system and maximize your, you know, people take loans to buy more Bitcoin because they're convinced that they're going to be able to pay off their loan. But at the same time, there are also people who live independently from the banking system and they use Bitcoin to not use banks. And to them, it's like a mean to opt out from the system entirely. So you can have different goals. You can have a lot of money, which you might get if you buy more Bitcoin and you leverage the fiat system for it. Or you can have more freedom, which means that you're going to spend the Bitcoin that you have to be able to resist the fiat system that you don't like. I don't think there is any wrong way, but I'm fascinated by both sides. And I think that both sides are a lot more free than the self-defeating I don't know how I should call them. Maybe I should not use any adjective to refer to them, but you know what I mean. Well, it, yeah, man, it, it is it is very puzzling to me how an entire generation has let itself be subordinated like our generation has, you know. And I've often wondered how it could happen. Like, how does that happen with... with With the generation that has been um, maybe not well-educated, but certainly been educated and perhaps badly educated, uh, maybe what I'm starting to realize. But, you know, all of my friends, they they should know about uh, modern history. And uh, still, it seems like they have let themselves be subordinated by this sort of fiat mindset. And I can only think that it's the system itself. It is the the incentive structure that the fiat system imposes on every institution and thus every individual within uh, and affected by those institutions uh, that end up be having their minds corroded like like it seems they have um but scary that you have i know you started off saying so i i don't want to force you to go there but how you've really been enjoying like diving down the bitcoin rabbit hole because it, everything that's happening on the sort of geopolitical uh plane is um, depressing and or a time. You know, there's also there's also this side of me which feels like the warnings that we have issued as Bitcoiners about inflation and all of that stuff were meant to not happen. So they were more like ways of explaining that this can actually turn out to be terrible and Bitcoin is like a safety net against that. But now it's turning out to be a lot different. And all of the concerns and all of the criticisms that we had ended up becoming some sort of playbook that central bankers have been using to print more money and devalue the currency. And now they're trying to lie with statistics to say that there is no inflation. This also happens in Romania where they, they're trying to hide the exact amount of inflation that happened. And they settled around 5%, but prices have gone up a lot more than that. So it makes you wonder and it makes you realize that, you know, I think fundamentally Bitcoin was created to deter, to present a threat 
and tell governments and central banks that they should not go to these lengths or else they're going to get replaced. But now it seems like they want to get replaced. And it's very strange to me. I'm still trying to adjust to this new reality. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me just that that they realize that they've run out of road. You know, that, that, that perhaps already back in 2008, they realized that there was only going to be so much runway. And um, and I suppose that is my hypothesis for why we're seeing this sort of geopolitical fuckery to, uh, to use a... Uh, a uh, a uh, not so uh, studious word, perhaps. Um, that basically just that they have no other option but to either switch to a sound monetary standard or basically ruin the economy through printing. Um, it seems to me that they couldn't possibly not be aware of that. It's also interesting to me that it only took two generations to make people forget what money is. It's only been 50 years since we have been living under this fiat standard. And it seems like people don't care if their money is backed by anything. They just know that they can use it to fulfill their immediate needs and to pay for stuff. So that's all that matters to them. That's that's an interesting way. Of, that's an interesting sort of visual frame to put on it. It's taken two. It's taken two generations to forget about money, or what money is, in its in its essence, and it's taken one generation to forget history, and to forget what collectivism is, in its in its worst form. It seems as well. Um, how can it be that in this, you know, in the space of 25, 30 years, we've, I, I have a friend of a friend who is an influential kind of political speaker in the UK who claims to be a luxury communist. Like, I don't know what the fuck she's on about, but this, this whole notion that like um, communism just wasn't ever like the right brand of communism like if she was in charge or whatever, or people of her ilk or her church, then they would have luxury communism now, as her slogan is. You see these people all around university campuses and you see them glorifying the 1917 revolution of Vladimir Lenin. And they say that it was such a good idea, but it turned out terribly and they, they always find reasons. But I think it was Lenin himself who, on his deathbed or before he was about to pass, he made this remark that he wanted to build communism, but what he created was state communism, state capitalism, sorry, state capitalism. So basically just a crony way of doing capitalism, where instead of having a free market, you have a bunch of powerful actors who make decisions. So communism doesn't really scale, not even in these hippie communes where they're able to agree with each other and share everything that they owned. If you scale it for an entire country, you're going to find lots of problems. In Romania, they had food ratios 
rations, sorry, not ratios. So you could only get as much milk or as much sugar or as much bread as the state allowed you to. It did not matter if you're big or small or fat or skinny or diabetic or whatever. You would get like a card which allowed you to get this amount of food every month and this amount of gas. So if you wanted to go on vacation in summer or something, you had to save up the gas for many months to be able to travel to the seaside or whatever. So it's always this roadblock that happens in ideas concerning socialism and its more extreme counterpart, not counterpart, more extreme sibling communism. And for some reason, people keep on thinking that they can make it work. But we never really had a work. The same thing is happening. Hmm? No, no, sorry. It's just the, the same thing is happening again. Or is, is about to happen again, right? It's going to be meat rations. It's going to be CO two rations. You know, it might have been fuel in your in in your parents or, or, or grandfather's time. It's going to be like how much of your CO two credits do you have? Left? Carbon credits do you have left? How much are you still able to travel? So you have to spend, you have to save up your your carbon credits so you can go on holiday. It's, the story is just repeating itself again, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's actually interesting because before this, it was in the name of the state and in the name of the struggle that workers have had for centuries, or at least since the Industrial Revolution. And now it's about saving the planet. So they have found a different justification for the same measures, except that this time it's a lot harder to argue against it. You can see that there is some warming. You can see that there is pollution. But instead of finding ways and investing in research to stop them from happening, they, I don't know, they, they tell you to live in a cave once again and get back to some lifestyle which doesn't really account for all of the economic growth which is happening. And I can understand that there are some resources like water, like grains, I guess, because you can only do crops on certain regions. And as the population of the world keeps on growing, it's going to be a lot more difficult for all of these resources to cover the needs of everybody. But instead of finding ways to make more water from the ocean drinkable or to expand agriculture and find new ways to do it, but I'm pretty sure that they already did this, they're trying to create a new class of authoritarians who who are the experts who are going to tell you that you're not allowed to do this, but they do it on a regular basis. They have their private jets. They have you know, like a pass to break all of the rules. I think my camera just died, but we can go on regardless. And I think the first figure which comes to mind is Al Gore, who has been trying to sell carbon credits since, I think, the year 2000. And he has popularized the, the idea and tried to turn himself into this rent seeker who's going to benefit from it. And I think with the 2016 Paris Accord, I think he finally succeeded with it because there are some 
very specific terms about credit scores and carb, uh, not credit scores, carbon credits, which favor people like him. And the fact that I read the news recently that the Winklevi brothers bought some carbon credits with their money, this only proves that they're trying to legitimize this system and they're pumping money into it and they're trying to prove that it's real and there's market for it and it's liquid. And it kind of pisses me off to know that I'm going to have children and they're going to grow in a world which makes them act in a way that's a lot less free than I was. I suppose that you and me, we are part of that generation which used to play outside. But when I look at kids today, they spend more time on tablets than, I don't know, climbing trees and trying to play football outside and whatever. I see kids every day where I live and I watch them play. But instead of being left alone to play in the playground, they are being supervised all the time by their parents. So they, they are never really free and they're going to get used to this idea of being surveilled all the time. So when the government does it to them, they're going to find themselves feeling comfortable. Because ultimately, I think that government is an extension of both God and your parents. It has this paternal component, which makes you feel like somebody else is taking care of you. And it's getting bigger. Like, unquestionably, we see the government extending its mandate towards sectors and fields of work that used to not be related to them, but they're trying to get their hands into everything. But, I mean, something I keep coming back to in my own sort of uh, thinking um, is that a lot of this can be explained by humans and human life getting further and further away from from, from nature you know uh, further away from life and life and death and, and that kind of explains a lot of the shit that's going on at the moment with with, with the quote unquote pandemic um, you know what's happening with food you know uh, that's also indicative of how we have sort of divorced from nature know eating processed shit and most people not lots of people uh, not really being truly aware of uh, how food is produced or how it has historically was produced and how it's produced now um and also get away getting away from our from our own nature you know as humans and um you were you mentioned something earlier on in our chat which I thought was really poignant, which is that the people in the city, those that think they have, they are sort of more evolved, perhaps, right? They're more sophisticated. They're more worldly. Um, they sort of see themselves as, as, as above or beyond where they came from. Nature rural life and that is but that it's actually those that are living uh, rural lives that are yeah 
the, the metropolitans see them as being further behind, but in a way, by being further behind, they're way further ahead, right? They are the only real sovereigns nowadays. Yeah, I see where this is heading. And you just made me think of this ideal that the Renaissance movement in Italy used to have. So when the Renaissance started in the 15th century, they had this ideal of man triumphing over nature and curbing all of its otherwise very strange way of being and unpredictable, but man being in charge and being able to change the landscape to tame every animal known to man to be able to nowadays i see that they're using rockets to change the weather or something so in a sense i think this is like the natural step towards it to feel superior to living in nature and those who live in nature are regarded more as backwards humans even though they're the only ones who are capable of sustaining and making an honest living and, you know, withstanding any kind of crisis that might come. They're not reliant on the economy in any way, regardless of what's going on. They are able to live a decent life, even if it's not lavish or something. And of course, there's a big disconnect between the people who grew up in cities, and I also grew up in a city, but having grandparents in the countryside, I was able to get the best of both worlds. I would spend summer holidays when I was still a child in school at my grandparents. And, you know, I would spend the entire day playing football with other kids and climbing trees, trying to get fruits and whatever. So it was kind of this unsupervised and free lifestyle that I was able to live there and maybe that I did not appreciate too much in its time because I was not as cool as the other kids in my class who maybe had a PlayStation console or whatever. But at the same time, being able to get the best of both worlds helped me understand that there's a lot more to life than living in a city, you know, going to school, getting a job, trying to pay your rent, trying to start a family. And it's usually very depressing. And this is a term that I think Karl Marx is responsible for popularizing in philosophy and sociology. It's called alienation. But Karl Marx has used it in the sense that workers in factories produce very specific kinds of goods and services. And they are not able to see the final product. So, for example, you only have a worker who's, who's going to create some sort of screw that goes into a bigger mechanism, but they only produce screws all day long and they're not able to see the bigger mechanism because they're not part of the entire production process. They're only a component of it. And we see something similar of alienation with people who never see where their food comes from and they never understand how nature works, or they don't really understand that they are part of nature. They think that they're above it. And I think I was not really like a compute hum complete, not a compute, a complete human being until I was able to come up, pre 
you know, come to terms to accept the fact that there's an animal side of me which sometimes needs to get unleashed in some way. And that's why I do sports. That's why I try to stay active to unleash this beast inside of me, which sometimes needs to do stuff. And I accept it. I, I understand that I'm the evolution of some sort of animal which needed to be wild once in a while. But I suppose that propaganda and ideology can, to some extent, tame you and make you think that you're supposed to behave in a certain way. And the fact that nowadays we are surrounded by surveillance cameras and we... It was kind of revolutionary when I was in high school, but we were the first school in my district to have security cameras on the hallways. And this was a way to prevent, you know, kids get into fights. So it was a way to make us behave. But now it's the norm. And some parents even ask their school to put security cameras in the classroom. And they even ask, you know, local authorities to put security cameras around all corners so that they can observe what's happening with their children. And once again, this is very alienating because they these parents don't have as much time to spend with their children and they entrust all of their education to the state. I, I think from this point of view, I'm very lucky because I had parents who wanted me to learn stuff outside of school, not necessarily because they thought the education system sucked, which right now I do, but because they just they were aware that there's a lot of stuff in life that never gets taught in school. So they wanted me to do all sorts of other activities. But there are kids who never get that experience, who go to school in the morning. Then they go to some sort of after school program where they do their homework with some other kind of teacher. And they, then they go home in the evening and they only have like a short conversation with their parents, they have dinner and then they go to bed. And that's the point where you ask yourself, is it really your child or does it belong to the state? Because basically it's the state who educates your child. And the ideas that your child develops are not going to belong to some sort of family tradition or some sort of ideas that you might have or that you want to pass on to your children. So there's going to be a lot of like-mindedness with the generation that's slightly younger than me. I think the Zoomers. Uh, I think I'm a millennial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um it, it, it's um it's a <laughs> it's quite mind-boggling the whole thing. And uh I suppose Everything always, you know, there's a life cycle to everything, and and and, um, and things they kind of. I've always sort of thought that things they work in a in a sort of pendulum effect, you know, where you have to reach one extreme until before you can move towards the other. But more and more, it seems like we are heading heading into some sort of super cycle, final cycle. What? whatever way you look at it you know if the authoritarians the technocrats they get their way and kind of manage to implement their crazy panopticon that they are obviously planning 
that could well be that could well be the the, the final cycle there um, but also reversely and, and something I, I believe much more in in the long term is 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 the final super cycle of um, private property and freedom through Bitcoin. Um, it's crazy, but it does like it's like the final battle scene, isn't it? It's um, it's about to become super epic. I don't know. I don't get the feeling that there is this ending coming to anything. I think our generation was raised in this kind of mindset that we might just be the last generation and the world is going to run out of natural resources. And there was a lot of fear-mongering, which dates back to the 1970s. But as we have seen all of the concerns about the land being covered in ocean water or running out of oil or whatever, they never really happened. The ozone layer seemed to be fine for longer than they thought and we we i don't know why this is but we have had i remember watching cartoons as a kid and i used to have this sense of the world coming to an end for whatever reason i'm not sure if it it's part of a greater propaganda or maybe that the christian tradition teaches you that there's gonna be a judgment day and it might just happen in your lifetime. But it, it's still interesting that this is more prevalent than it was ever before. My parents living under communism, I think they still had more social freedom and they could still gather and do stuff as opposed to what we have today under systems which have constitutions that state that we should have a lot more freedoms, but act a lot more violently and in more totalitarian ways than what they had. This is kind of an interesting paradox now that I think about it right now. And it's only going to get worse because we allow it to get worse. And we have no real means to fight against this other than grabbing our pitchforks or whatever because we don't have guns in this country. And protesting in front of the government but even in this case what's next because i think the global system is so entrenched and it doesn't matter what kind of government you're going to have it's only a matter of a few elites and this is not some sort of conspiracy theory but after world war ii has ended it was clear who were the winners and who are the losers and the consequences that we see today are part of either living in a nation state that won or lost the war. And I happen to live in a country that lost the war. We are on the side of the Axis. So the fact that we lost the war and we had communism and everything else was sort of like a punishment because the, the allies had no incentive to save us. They were like, okay, you can take the USSR. We don't care much about that part of the world. We're going to draw the Iron Curtain here but you're going to give us Turkey and Greece because we like them and we like to go on vacation. That was very random. So the world order was established back then. And right now we suffer the consequences of it. And after the Iron Curtain fell, it's not like the countries that used to be under communism 
got a second chance. They really didn't. We were basically incorporated into this global economy that we did not understand and for which we were not ready. We did not really have the capital to extend businesses beyond our national markets. Most of them just went bankrupt or were bought by corporations that understood capitalism on an international level a lot better. So I don't know. It feels like we are struggling with understanding this order that has been established. And it doesn't really matter in the case of my country what kind of government we're having. But this is also what I like about my country, that for centuries we have been occupied by the Ottoman Empire and Russia and the USSR. And we have been at war and we have tried to gain our independence. But all of this experience has made us very disloyal. Like we are going to be dominated politically by this international power, but it doesn't mean that the average person is going to have any respect for it or that we're going to abide to all of the rules. It just means that we accept the fact that we can live life peacefully and be able to make a living. My country actually happens to have lots of resources and we have gold, we have oil, we have everything that you can think of. But these natural resources are devalued by a lot when you take into consideration geopolitical dimensions. We are very close to Russia, and if we don't want to be part of the Russian world and be within their sphere of influence, we have to pay the price for our defense. And right now, I think for almost a decade, we have an anti-missile ballistic shield that was built here by NATO. And yeah, we are trying to become... I, I think Romania was the first country to accept Donald Trump's proposal to pay... I'm not sure if it was 1% or 2% of the GDP for defense to NATO. We were the first ones. And actually, Donald Trump used our president as an example of a world leader who is willing to pay for defense while other countries are not willing to. But it, it's not like we have much of a choice other than allowing Russia to take over what we have left. So it, it's a very strange kind of situation, but... What I'm trying to say basically is that small nation states that have always been small and never really had an empire or never extended beyond their borders have a greater sense of preserving what is theirs and are more stubborn and harder to... Maybe that they're easy to conquer politically, so it's easy to take over the government if you want, but it's hard to convince the people to do anything. And that's the kind of resilience that I've discovered later in Bitcoin with, you know, it's easy to take over the hash power, maybe if you spend a lot of money into mining gears, but it doesn't mean that the nodes are going to approve your blocks. I feel like we are very conservative blocks here in Rome, not blocks, nodes here in Romania. Yeah. We don't let anyone mine blocks that's for us. That's interesting. Yeah, well, that's that's a very interesting perspective. Now, I, I certainly don't think that this is the um, the end of humanity in any sort of way. You know, um, I I just 
I think that the the technocrats perhaps see this as their opportunity to create everlasting change. But I'm with you, and I've used this uh, kind of analogy or, or metaphor before, you know, like, and it kind of speaks to what you're saying about the humanity and in 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 in, uh, in the Romania is that they can try to you know they can try to concrete over a forest floor see how long it lasts right before roots they start penetrating up through uh, through the the concrete or whatever it's um yeah it they're, they're super interesting times regardless of how you um how you look at it but i'm with you i i have a great i have great faith in in, in humanity and and uh, and the individual um, individual resistance and um we'll, we'll see how it plays out i'm curious also how this is a bit of a detour a couple of steps back but just interested to hear about how um your discovery of bitcoin has change the creative output of yours and if it has whether you have been more inspired by bitcoin uh, more inspired to share more inspired to create um, since finding that than you were before mm, that's a complicated answer to offer since i think in the first years i worked a lot and i worked for mostly other publications so as I said, I used to work for Crypto Insider and then I went to Bitcoin Magazine and then I quit and I decided that I want to work for myself. And it wasn't until I decided to work for myself that I unlocked this creativity once again. Because before that, it was only about trying to make the deadline with some assignment. It wasn't much about what I wanted. It was about what, what was demanded from me. But now that I have more time to think, and luckily I was able to find two sponsors who don't care about statistics, don't care about numbers or anything. They just think that if I keep on going, I'm going to succeed at some point and also elevate their products and services, which I think is really great because it's very hard to find anyone who believes in your work, like anywhere in any field. It's very hard to convince anyone that your heart is in the right place and you're going to be consistent. But it's... Yeah, the long-term prospects of your work as well, right? Rather than the here and now. Yeah, I remember talking to a potential sponsor last year and they looked at my stats and were like, yeah, so we can give you like $20 a month for this. And it was because they only looked at the clicks and it takes time to actually develop something and have a proper search engine optimization to have enough articles to have a constant publishing schedule, which right now I think I've been lazy to follow. Since I launched the magazine, I haven't really written anything new. So I need to catch up with that. But creatively, because that that's what the question is about, I think, so I'm not sure if it's the fact that I started working for myself or the pandemic. I think it was both. Because being indoors for a longer time, 
just made me think more about what I can create and how I can keep myself distracted from what's going on outside. So I wrote a lot of music. I wrote a lot of articles. I recorded and produced some of my own songs. I, I feel like I've learned a lot just by doing this. Before this, I, I was not so much into production, but I have spent hours just looking at people on YouTube using software like Logic Pro, or I think the one by Universal Audio is called Luna. I, I didn't dive too much into it. I don't have too many plugins anyway because they're very expensive. But it's still something that you learn and something that you acquire. And, you know, you have worked in a music studio before. It makes a lot of difference sometimes if you raise the level by one decibel or you bring it down. And the ability to mix and pan every instrument, I feel like my mixes are still muddy to some extent. And I don't really make each instrument shine, but it's still getting better. And I think that with every song that I try to produce, I learn something new and I discover something new. And it's interesting that I started getting into music from this perspective of, at first, I just wanted to play guitar like Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin. And that was it. I was so blown away by Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin that I I, I was imagining myself playing the solo Stairway to Heaven or Whole Lot of Love and stuff like that. But soon I discovered that, first of all, it's hard and not anyone can play guitar that fast. And secondly, I don't really want to do that. Like when you suck at trying to emulate others, sometimes you end up becoming creative and doing something that nobody else did or nobody else can just because it's different and it sounds different. And Sometimes when you try to play like somebody else, but you end up sounding like yourself, you can either take that as an incentive to further perfect your technique to sound more like that guy or to try to make the most out of it and figure out, okay, so I have something unique here. Maybe that I'm sloppy, maybe, maybe that I'm slow, but these harmonics, the way that I produce tone, there's something in this. And if I try to make more of it, Maybe that potentially I can create something. I can build songs. I can, I don't know. I can write something which is my own. And I've always been, to some extent, not necessarily selfish, but individualistic. And the only teams in which I actually succeeded were the ones that I led and I coordinated. I, I tend to be a very bad team player just because I question leadership all the time. And I ask questions and not many people can take my scrutiny. So I end up being marginalized and I'm fine with that. Like, I feel like that's my natural state of being. And I only found myself in teams where I respected the leaders and I understood that they have a better vision than me and I can actually learn something. But usually that did not last too long for whatever reason. Either that I learned everything that there was to learn from them or maybe that I'm difficult to deal with. I mean, every other, you can ask Bitcoin Magazine what kind of person I am and I don't think they're going to praise me, but they can praise my writing. And <laughs> I, I think this comes to my advantage because I can produce good work yeah. and nobody's going to argue that it's not good. 
So it's worth the money. So they're not going to complain about it, but they still have to deal with me. But the fact that I get to do this for myself, it's like a purification. I get to do everything else that I thought I could do better than the others, which is not always the case. You always think that you're going to be so much better if you get the chance, but then you end up trying to do graphics for your own articles and you see how much you fail and how much you have to learn. But I've still learned something new and I think I'm getting better. And there's a lot to be said about this. And if you're a creative person and you like to build stuff, I don't think you ever stop. I think there's something itching all the time. You feel like if a week has gone by and you haven't done anything creative, there's something off. There's always there's also something off about routines. Like at some point you're going to run into roadblocks and you're going to think that there's nothing left of you to create because you've exhausted all of your ideas or you can't perfect what you have done any further. That's the end of it. But luckily, I, I try to dive into music, writing. I also try to do some YouTube videos. So I, I have plenty of stuff to keep me busy. Also podcasting. So I never really find the time to get burned out of something because I move on to another assignment, another task. And I find it refreshing that I don't get to do that same thing all over again. So this is another piece of wisdom and advice. If you're a creative person, learn to do multiple tasks. Like if you're a painter, also try to, I don't know, write or write music, play an instrument or dance or whatever makes you feel good. Just to be able to express yourself in a different way And you might even discover that the other craft that you have learned how to do actually elevates the other one which helps you make a living and you're going to end up combining them into something that the world hasn't heard before. 100%. I mean, creativity is additive in in my brain. And um, I'm the same as you. I'm creative in, in, in as many ways as I can be just because... That's just that's just how you how you live. I mean, it's not even a question of desire. It's it's just a need, isn't it? It's it's just a natural state of being. And whether it's like sewing costumes for my son, or build you know renovating and building on our citadel, or uh, cooking or making music, or, you know, as you're saying, it, it takes so many different shapes. and, uh, and, and But all of it kind of uh, adds to the other. And I think you become, you've become a better builder for being a, um, for being able to make clothes, for example. Or do you know what I mean? Like you end up seeing just slight uh, details uh, or angles where, where where you can take inspiration from one field and, and 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 use it in another, and I also really agree with what you're saying about. I mean, the most interesting people in my life are 
all of the many eccentrics that I that I'm close friends with that are just remarkable people. You know, remarkable because they're unique and individual. They are also the ones that are the most difficult. So some of my very good friends, you have moments where you think, "What a f- dick," <laughs> at least momentarily. But they're the ones that give you the most, and they're the ones you admire the most. Um, Vlad, we we've ripped nearly two hours already. Um, I uh, I could carry on going, but um, I I feel I better round off. Final question. Um, what is a controversial view that you hold about Bitcoin? Or possibly controversial view, or a view not held by uh, the orthodoxy, if you like. So one which I expressed very recently concerns mining from home. And I basically try to say that just like we run our own nodes from home, we could use devices that are built specifically for mining, so ASICs, that are not necessarily created for industrial use in mining farms, but have a lower power output and also a lower hash rate, and yet they can be used in your household, just like you keep a router or something. And if we were to have these, just like we have nodes, we could decentralize mining, and not only that, but we could also enable some more censorship resistance because the nodes don't have any word to say in which transactions the miners are going to pick up. And the miners are empowered with this ability to censor certain transactions that come from certain actors. So if they don't like some addresses or some exchanges, they can actually ignore some of the transactions. This comes at their cost So they're not going to earn the fees that come from these transactions, but it still destroys the fungibility of the currency just because there is a way for you to intervene. So I believe that in the coming years, we should invest more and focus more of our attention into mining from home. And another controversial opinion, and it's not controversial in many circles, but it's controversial with the people who have learned that Bitcoin as it is, is just perfect and we don't need to change it. So I believe that we should add more privacy into it. I think that inventions that we have seen in cryptography, such as zero knowledge proofs with ZK snarks that we have in Zcash, as well as the Mimblewimble stuff, which was designed from the ground up to be scalable. Both of them are very interesting. I would also mention Monero's ring signatures, but they are not scalable. They build huge transactions and that would be terrible for Bitcoin, especially since we have established that we're going to keep the blocks small. But I believe that in the coming years, we should figure out ways to add more privacy to our transactions. And I don't think that if this is going to become a currency that we use on a daily basis, we should have this absolute transparency for everything. And some people are going to have issues with the auditability of the amounts. But with zero knowledge proofs, that's kind of the shtick of it because you send messages to the rest of the network, but there are cryptographic ways to verify that the money that was sent was not generated via inflation and it was actually part of the proof of work chain. So there are ways to do it. 
we still need to figure out ways to do transaction privacy in Bitcoin. I'm sure that coin joins are fine and they are very useful, but they have some of their limits and they would be enhanced and they would have their potential unlocked if we had some sort of confidential transactions. So yeah, these are my two opinions, mining from home and adding more privacy into Bitcoin. I'll never be able to hear the uh, the word transactions without um, hearing and seeing uh, your clip from the voice paper video where you go, transactions. Oh, I've actually added a flanger for guitar. my voice for that one. <laughs> I, I wanted yeah. it to be more robotic, but I'm not sure if it was robotic. I, I don't think it was robotic, but it was cool as hell. Well, I was speaking to... Dim Zion. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his mm -hmm. name. Yep. Zayan, yeah. Zion, I'm not sure. But I was speaking with him and he told me, you know, you can get this part, but it only has one word. And at first I was disappointed. So I'm going to be part of the voice paper project. I'm going to read something from the white paper, but it's only one word, which is the title of the subchapter, which is transactions. So... At first, I was disappointed, but then I said to myself, what if I make the most of it? So what if it's not just one word? <laughs> or it is one word, but I do something extra to make it more impactful. So I, I took the time to think about what I can do. And then I said, okay, so I, I play this you know, riff on my guitar and also scream it at the end in a way that's going to shock everyone watching. And it turned out to be the most, I don't want to speak in superlatives, so maybe it was not the most shocking or whatever. But if you watch that video, it kind of stands out just because it has the guitar part. Plus, I did something with the lights in my background to make it look like it's more badass. So from that point of view, I think it was a success and I'm kind of proud of it. It was badass, man. And but it was, but that was what so was so great about that project is that so many different individuals they just like um, try to do something individual and you know uh, and 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 unique with uh, with very little in many cases, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that was great, man. Well, thank thank you for coordinating that project. It means a lot to the community and. Yeah, I mean, obviously it was Dim's, it was Dim's baby, but uh, I was happy to, uh, very happy to help and be part of it. Um, but um, yeah, Vlad, thanks for uh, all your contributions to the space, all the creativity and um, you know education and knowledge you're you're, you're pouring into it. I um, I've no doubt that you are, you know, going to create a very nice niche for yourself particularly with given given more time and um yeah man look forward to look forward to chatting to you again likewise keep going what i i feel jealous that you have some sort of transcripts for your interviews with the most important quotes like uh if if i had enough time and i wasn't doing so much i, I would also do that but you take the cake for that one well we're a band of merry men you know we're, we're sharing the workload you you are you're you're a lone you're a lone rider. Well, I'm I'm gonna push harder.
the fact that you exist and you do this only makes me want to get better. So, likewise, I appreciate you. Oh, thank, thank you. Thanks, man.